0: Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hustle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osborne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock Roll. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. Hard times, hard time. Got everybody trouble. Not all, they got you. It's got me, oh Lord. It's got the rich, it's got the poor, it's got the. The stories about Thelma Todd are insane. She confronted a stalker alone on a dark corner of Hollywood Boulevard with just a dollar and a gun in her purse. She stood up to the mob when they tried to start a gambling den in the back room of a cafe she ran with her lover. She killed off her world-famous name in an attempt to give up comedy for dramatic acting. And then, she herself was killed off. Or was it an accident? The death of Thelma Todd in her own garage at the age of 29 remains one of the great unsolved deaths of Hollywood's golden age. A golden age in which Thelma Todd made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of the Liberty High School Quartet performing Hard Times in 1939. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Alan Crossland's The Great Impersonation. And why would I play you that specific slice of doppelganger murder plot cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on December 14, 1935. And that was the day Thelma Todd, AKA the ice cream blonde, was found dead in her car in an apparent accidental asphyxiation. On this episode, confronting a stalker, dramatic stage names, Hollywood mobsters, a mysterious death, and Thelma Todd. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season nine. Hollywood land. December, 1935. Winter was colder than Thelma Todd expected it to be. She was a child of Massachusetts, used to the cold, but California was the land of sunshine and endless summer, or so they said. As she readied herself for the party that night at Cafe Trocadero in Hollywood, she reminded herself that California wasn't always what it appeared to be. Her maid helped her climb into a long mink coat over a sparkling blue cocktail dress. Did she need the big ring of keys that unlocked every door in the building? Nah, Thelma shook her head, her tight blonde curls shaking like tiny bells. She didn't want to be weighted down that evening, not by keys or men or anything else. Her maid took a single key off the ring and for the side door that led up to the apartment she tucked it into Thelma's slim white coin purse and handed it to her. The car was waiting outside, in front of the cafe Thelma co-owned with her business partner, former director and sometime lover, Roland West. Their relationship was complicated. Complicated in part because Roland West was 20 years older and was still married. The cafe and the apartment above where Thelma lived and where Roland stayed with only a sliding door between them for deniability, made things a little easier. But the complex web of sex, emotions, and business frayed easily. Roland grabbed Thelma by the elbow as she was on her way out, harder than he needed to. He smiled. Don't forget to be back by two, honey. Later, he'd tell the coroner this curfew was out of concern for Thelma. A beauty needed her beauty sleep. Thelma smiled back. She was an actress and she sold it, lighthearted, casual. Of course, Roland. She shook her elbow free of his grip and glided by him, out of the apartment, down the stairs, and into the waiting car. Thelma Todd told the driver to go fast, and as they sped from Santa Monica into Hollywood, she alternated between looking out the back window as if she was being followed and gracing the driver with her megawatt smile and snappy patter. Thelma Todd was trying. She was really selling it, getting into character as the so-called ice cream blonde, the screen beauty without a care in the world. But every time the car stopped for a red light, she glanced nervously out of the window and wished the driver would plow through the intersection. The party tonight was just for her, thrown by friends to help her say so long to a difficult year. Selma Todd was ready to put 1935 in the rearview mirror. Inside the fashionable cafe Trocadero, she worked the room. She dazzled everyone in attendance with her charm. Until one guest stopped her dead in her tracks. Her ex-husband, Pat DeSico, here with his new girl. That relationship too had been complicated. Pat was a hothead, a low-level talent agent with aspirations to be a movie producer or a mobster but without the connections or the brains to succeed as either. As Thelma's career took off, leaving her less and less time to play the doting homemaker, Pat got fed up, and then he got abusive. They divorced the year prior, in 1934, and she hadn't seen him since, until now. Thelma would have been content to never see him again, but here he was, at her party. Thelma locked that carefree grin onto her face one more time. She exchanged curt pleasantries with her ex and his new girl, and then went straight to the dance floor. She had better things to do than to waste her time with a nobody like Pat DeSico. Besides, she had other plans. She was gonna make a new movie in England. She was seeing a guy from San Francisco, a businessman, whose name she refused to divulge. She told her friends all about it, and they were happy that she was happy. It seemed the old Thelma was back, and for hours she was. At 3.45 a.m., Thelma's car pulled up in front of the cafe building she called home. She was reluctant to get out. She made a big show of looking around the back seat to make sure she hadn't left anything. For the entire drive, she'd been silent, but now she chatted up the driver, asking him questions like, did she owe him anything for the ride, even though she knew Roland took care of all that. Typically, the driver took care of Thelma by walking her up to the side door of the building that led to the upstairs apartment especially during this particular year when Thelma seemed to jump at every shadow. But tonight, Thelma refused to help. She insisted on walking alone. The driver scanned the scene. There were no other cars and no one he could see. The lights in the cafe were off, but he couldn't tell if the lights in the apartment were on. Ultimately, it was Thelma's decision and he couldn't do much to argue with her. He said goodnight and watched her walk up the hill toward the cafe. He got back into the car and pulled out onto the boulevard, pausing a moment to look back. Thelma was heading to the side door, her back to the driver. She was safe. He drove away. He was the last person to see her alive. That was late Friday night. On Sunday morning, Thelma's maid drove into work. Her routine was to park her own car in Thelma's garage, located up the steep hill from the cafe Thelma lived above. There, she switched out her car for Thelma's Lincoln and drove it down the hill so Thelma could use it that day. The garage was unlocked and the keys were always left in the Lincoln's ignition. Remember, this was 1935 and the world was safer. The maid carried bundles of laundry and other packages, intending to load them into the Lincoln to bring them down to Thelma's apartment. And when she opened the passenger door of the car, she jumped. Thelma Todd was slumped in the front seat, her head hanging to the left. She looked just like she had the last time the maid saw her, getting ready for her party. Her mink coat, her blue cocktail dress, her immaculate hair, everything was perfect. Then the maid saw the blood around Thelma's nose. She reached out to shake Thelma awake, but there was no response. Thelma Todd, a promising comedic actress of the early silver screen, was dead at 29. Welcome back to Musicland Stories. Join us for a new aquatic season, exploring the sonic adventures of sea creatures from ghost crabs to octopodies, earworms to mazes of coral reef. Listen to the newest season of Musicland Stories, airing weekly every Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon, aquatic adventurers. Captain out. Thelma Todd's heels clacked against the pavement of Hollywood Boulevard, echoing in the haze of the summer night. She walked past her usual hangouts, the clubs and cafes, into a part of the Boulevard that was less trafficked and more shady. She clutched her little purse tightly. Inside was one dollar and a gun. She was on her way to meet the man who'd been threatening her for months. The man whose last letter said to meet him here on this block with $10,000 in cash or else she'd be kidnapped, killed. The man who was identified only by the crude ace of hearts drawing sketched at the bottom of each letter he sent. The police were no help and hiding wouldn't help either. She wasn't about to let some little coward ruin her life. She clung to her purse, the weight of the little gun inside giving her purpose. Ahead of her, She saw a man loitering on the corner. He was dodgy, checking his watch, hiding from the cone of the streetlight. Thelma approached him. One look at him and she knew this wasn't the guy. He was more scared of her than she was of him. This guy just made her feel sad. He looked her up and down and said, how about we go someplace more secluded? Thelma Todd put her chin in the air, turned on her heel and walked back up Hollywood Boulevard, back to her world. The letters came from New York and they'd been showing up for months. The first one came to the studio where Thelma Todd worked, 10 months before her death in February, 1935. Soon there were others, to the cafe that bore her name, to her home address. One found its way to an ex-boyfriend telling him to urge Thelma to play along. And they all said roughly the same thing. Give me 10 grand or bad things are going to happen to Thelma Todd. And underneath the writing, that crude drawing of the ace of hearts. Thelma took the letters seriously. Just the fact that the writer knew where to send them indicated that he wasn't some amateur. Not that it took a genius to find out where she lived. At the time, Hollywood magazines and newspapers regularly printed the addresses of movie stars. The year before, PhotoPlay ran a feature about Thelma in her expensive perfume collection, complete with her address. Just months later, thugs ransacked her apartment while she was away and helped themselves to that impressive perfume stash. But the Ace of Hearts letters were so consistent that they soon became unsettling. They were national news which just encouraged the writer to write more, mocking the police's inability to do anything about it. And there was so much detail in the papers about those letters that copycats began cropping up. Like the guy avoiding the cone on the streetlight on Hollywood Boulevard the one Thelma had gone to meet thinking he was the real deal. To combat the harm the papers were doing and the risk they were putting her at, the movie studios floated a story that Thelma was under armed guard 24-7. But nobody saw any muscle with her when she was at the Brown Derby or at Sardi's. In May, three months into the threatening letters, Thelma greeted guests at the World's Fair in San Diego without an armed guard in sight. Because... Thelma Todd was not going to be intimidated by anyone. She grew up working class in Massachusetts. When she was four, her family went on vacation to a creamery in Vermont. And this was 1910. It's not like Disneyland was on the table. Her older brother was hypnotized by the churning machinery. Their mother had to pull him back from touching it. But later that same day, he and Thelma snuck back into the creamery. With no adults around, her brother started the machine up but his coat got caught in one of the belts. And the machine slowly pulled him into the works, mangling him while Thelma stood there, helpless in horror, watching clouds of deep red swirl in with the cream. After his death, Thelma swore to be both son and daughter to her grieving parents. She was a tomboy, and she'd deck any boy who tried to kiss her. A childhood full of roughhousing made her perfect for slapstick roles alongside comedy giants like Laurel and Hardy and the Marx Brothers, but there was no denying it was her looks that first got Hollywood's attention. While training to become a school teacher, she won Miss Massachusetts 1925, Then Hollywood scouts recruited her to join the Paramount Players' School, a kind of 1920s version of a reality show or an influencer house. Potential stars were sent up to New York where they lived in chaperoned dorms and trained in things like makeup and horseback riding. Anything a future Hollywood star might need. And Paramount used the school as a way to drum up publicity around what it called the next generation of Hollywood stars and starlets. Plenty of the young prospects burned out under the constant media attention and the pressure of acting coaches and weight monitoring. But Thelma thrived. She graduated from the Players school and got her ticket to Hollywood. This was the notorious era of the casting couch, when young women were expected to put out for producers in exchange for roles. But nobody tried that shit with Thelma Todd unless they wanted a black eye. She landed roles with her good looks and her comedic timing. It didn't hurt that this was the moment Hollywood was transitioning to talking pictures. Thelma's clear East Coast elocution meant she passed her mic test when more famous stars of The Silence were being led up to pasture because their voices just didn't cut it. In fact, Thelma Todd had only one weakness: her heart. Diagnosed with a murmur after fainting on set, hospitalized more than once for overexerting herself during some physically exhausting bit of comedy. And those bits of comedy didn't make her a massive star, but she was a fan favorite in comedy shorts alongside bigger names like Buster Keaton. In the 30s, she was paired with comedian Zasu Pitts for what the studios imagined would be a female Laurel and Hardy. They made 17 short films together between 1931 and 1933. And even when Zasu Pitts, the more famous of the two, left, the studio kept Thelma under contract with a new partner. For better or worse, by 1935, Thelma was famous enough and rich enough to be the subject of threats and for the police to take those threats seriously. The Ace of Hearts letters continued to arrive, and though she swore she wouldn't let herself be intimidated, she moved out of the apartment where she lived alone, the one the perfume thieves had already broken into, and into the apartment above the cafe that she owned. But the move didn't stop the letters or the threats. One explicitly promised that Thelma would be kidnapped if she didn't cop up 20 grand. This one arrived with something the other letters were missing, a return address, Astoria. The address matched up with a fan letter Thelma had gotten months before, so New York's finest staked out the address. The cops decided the landlord at the address, a father of two with no prior convictions, seemed sketchy, so they arrested him as the extortionist. The press reported on the arrest, and Thelma, for one, was relieved that this was all over except that the letters kept coming. In Astoria, a 26-year-old man living with his parents became increasingly agitated about the fact that their landlord was on trial for threatening to kidnap Thelma Todd. He told his parents he had a plan to protect the landlord. He called the local paper and confessed that he was the guy. He sent the letters, not the landlord. And the newspaper staff thought he was a crank and hung up. He called again and this time with specific details about what was in those letters. The newspaper set up a meeting with the man at a newsstand in Times Square, and they also informed the FBI, who arrested him on the spot. He copped to being the ace of hearts, said he was in love with Thelma Todd, though they'd never met. He also saw the letters as a sort of publicity stunt, a way to get the press talking about Thelma, to help her career which was funny because some people in the press actually accused Thelma and the studios of staging the whole thing to drum up publicity. The charges against the landlord were quietly dropped and the real criminal was committed to a mental institution. And the letters to Thelma Todd finally stopped. But by then, threatening letters were the least of her troubles. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. December, 1932, three years before Thamma body was found in the driver's seat of her Lincoln. The high school principal drove from LA to Santa Monica to visit a friend at work. That friend managed a sprawling seaside property called the Castellamare Inn, on the site of what had once been the movie studio of Thomas Ince. Ince basically invented Westerns. He died under mysterious circumstances on William Randolph Hearst's yacht in 1924, supposedly in a botched murder attempt on Charlie Chaplin, but that's another story. The one-time studio, INSS Studio Castellamare Inn, was now a successful resort, where the high school principal and the manager had a drink in the manager's office and caught up. What the principal didn't mention was that he'd been diagnosed with a terminal and incurable disease. The manager was called out of his office for a business matter. The principal was left alone, staring at the gun that the manager kept on his desk, the one he kept close in case of incidents with the local mob. The principal never saw his friend again. He picked up the gun, he pressed it against his head, and he pulled the trigger. The newspapers were all over the suicide. Reporters swarmed the resort. Between the mysterious death of the site's former owner, Thomas Ince, and now the death of the principal, the property became notorious. People said it was cursed. And that's how, in 1934, a Hollywood director was able to buy it for a song and reopen the restaurant with actress Thelma Todd as its public face. But a year later, the press would flock to the property again, this time to view another dead body. It was 1931, and Thelma Todd had a career most people would have envied. Maybe she wasn't a household name, but she was an established actress, dubbed the Queen of Slapstick for her comedic timing, and also the Ice Cream Blonde for her pale good looks and immaculate blonde scoop curls. Surely whoever came up with that one didn't know she'd once watched her brother get mangled to death in a creamery accident. But for all her success, Thelma Todd couldn't help but focus on the limits of her career. She was seen only as a comedic actress, which meant she didn't get offered the kind of serious dramatic leads that launched low-level stars into the stratosphere. Then along came director Roland West. 20 years her senior and married, the movie Roland directed Thelma in was the last one he ever made. And even though he was an Academy Award nominee, by the end of the 30s, he was remembered as one thing and one thing only the prime suspect in Thelma Todd's mysterious death. Roland West was going through his midlife crisis and his next movie project reflected that. The film was called Corsair about a stockbroker who throws off the shackles of modern life and takes to the sea to chase bootleggers. Roland wanted Thelma to play the romantic lead, a wealthy socialite who convinces the hero to give up his dreams of being a football coach in favor of a steady job. Roland's only issue with Thelma was that audiences thought of her as a funny gal. He worried that they wouldn't take her seriously in a dramatic role. His solution was to have Thelma Todd change her name. The film would bill her as Allison Lloyd. And Roland worked to get as much press coverage as he could on Thelma's new name and identity. Never mind that anyone buying a movie ticket knew her as Thelma Todd. Thelma Todd was dead at least on the marquee and up on the big screen. No one on set was allowed to refer to her as anything but Alison Lloyd. What was more surprising than the name change was the affair that started between the director and the star. Thelma had always kept herself above the fray of Hollywood's seedy hookup culture. She'd been romantically linked to a number of men, but there was never a whiff of scandal around her. She fell hard for Roland West. A shifty little unshaven guy in his mid-40s, a guy with a wife. The wife was even on set for some of the shoot while Thelma and Roland were together. But when filming ended, so did the affair. Roland went back to his wife and Thelma married Pat DeSico, the wannabe Hollywood insider and occasionally aspiring mobster whose jealousy of Thelma's success poisoned the marriage from the start. Their marriage lasted only a year before it broke down with accusations of abuse in the press. Around this time, Roland West and his wife bought the property that had once been the Castellamare Inn up in Santa Monica. Their first project was to open a cafe on the site, but they needed a gimmick, something to convince families strapped for cash by the depression to splurge on a drive up the coast and a meal. Roland had a solution they would get a famous actress to be the face of the restaurant. They'd go into business with Thelma Todd. Somehow, Roland not only got his wife on board with the idea of his former mistress, Thelma Todd, becoming their business partner, he got Thelma to agree to commit a significant amount of her time to running the cafe, greeting guests and signing autographs. But other parties were interested in becoming business partners with Roland West. Tony Cornero had moved to California from Italy when he was just a kid. He made a killing during Prohibition, running Canadian whiskey over the border. Actually, he probably made a couple other killings too, but none of the charges stuck. And by the 1930s, Tony was watching other mobsters hit it big with gambling in Havana. But gambling wasn't legal in California. Instead, mobsters like Tony ran gambling ships off the coast in international waters. But it was a pain in the ass ferrying customers out to sea. And when the federal or state authorities decided they did want to make a bust, those slow lumbering ships were sitting ducks. What Tony needed was a collection of private venues where rich patrons could gamble in style and on land. Plenty of LA clubs were more than happy to lease out their back rooms, speakeasy style to the local hoods. It was a way to make a little extra cash and clubs frequented by the Hollywood elite were almost immune to police raids. But the local mafia had already locked down the gambling rooms in central Hollywood, which meant Tony couldn't get a piece of that action, which is why he turned his eyes out to the coast, to the seaside cafe that had become not just a tourist stop, but a hangout destination for Hollywood's finest stars with money to burn. The sprawling property even had a back room, the section Roland West and the management simply called the tower. It was the perfect spot for a gambling den. Except that when Thelma Todd heard about the plans Tony and Roland were cooking up, she said she wasn't having it. It was her name on the cafe after all. Roland wanted to turn her cafe into a gambling den. That had only happened over Thelma Todd's dead body. Roland West felt like he and Thelma Todd were always being watched. There was Thelma's maid and Thelma's mother, both regulars in the upstairs apartment Roland and Thelma shared. But the cafe was the biggest factor. Between the staff and the customers lining up to meet and greet Thelma, the two of them never got a moment alone. More recently, they were opening a private room upstairs, a place where the Hollywood guests could enjoy a meal and a cocktail without getting mobbed by fans. And then there was the other room, the so-called tower room, which was even more private. Roland would sometimes throw gambling parties in the tower room for personal friends and associates. These were more than just poker nights. He had roulette wheels and card tables installed. Rumors of these parties reached Tony Carnero, the mobster shut out of the illegal gambling business in Hollywood who was now fed up trying to run gambling boats off the coast. He approached Roland West about elbowing in on the tower room, making it a little less exclusive. It was a partnership that would benefit all parties and refusing such an offer, well, that might come with consequences. Thelma shut the idea down flat. She was already being extorted for money by some mystery man in New York. She wasn't about to be pushed around by a low-rank California hood at the same time. Roland relayed Thelma's response to Tony Cornero, who was not happy to say the least. And over those next couple of months, Thelma was convinced she was being followed. She had a driver for when she needed to go into Hollywood, and she regularly asked him to run red lights at the boulevard stops downtown as if some thug on the corner would use that moment's pause to gun her down. Even with the looming threat of violence, Thelma wouldn't budge on the issue of the tower room. That's why she was so furious when Roland reminded her to be back by two on the night of the party her friends were throwing her at the Trocadero. Because Thelma's mother and the maid were both there, Roland tried to play it off as a concern for Thelma. She needed her sleep. Rest was essential to her looks and thus to her career. But Thelma knew the real reason. Roland had set up a meeting with Tony Carnero's men after the cafe closed that night. And they were gonna have a serious talk about the tower room and their potential partnership. Maybe she saw something the driver didn't when they pulled up to the house. A car parked somewhere, or a shadow through the window. Maybe she knew what was inside and wanted to keep the driver safe. Thelma taught in her big heart her one weakness. She sent the driver away and walked up to the house on her own. Roland West would later tell the grand jury that he'd locked and latched the side door. That Thelma wouldn't have been able to get in that way, and she must have taken the long walk to the garage instead. To keep warm. But the latch was just a little eye and a hook latch. Like you'd have on a screen door. And Thelma had the key to the lock. And if she wanted to get in, she could have done so easily. She could have entered the darkened apartment thinking that she'd stalled long enough. That Roland's mobster guests would have given up and left. One of those mobsters could have reached out in the dark to grab her. Thelma's weak heart skipping a beat. Maybe causing Thelma to faint and collapse. Then, perhaps Roland rushing to help, but not before one of the mobsters saw an opportunity. If Thelma Todd quietly exited the picture, there'd be nothing holding up their plans to open the tower room as a gambling den. And furthermore, Roland and the mobster could have picked up Thelma Todd's limp body, still in her fur coat, still with her perfect curls, and carried her to the garage. Maybe placing her just so in the front seat of the Lincoln, turning the key in the ignition, and shutting the door behind them. During the subsequent investigation, one officer let the other cops shut him in the garage with the Lincoln's engine running. After 90 seconds, he was pounding on the door to be let out, dizzy from the carbon monoxide. But Thelma must have woken up, at least once, hitting her nose on the steering wheel and drawing the little bit of blood found around her nostrils when her body was discovered. Roland insisted that Thelma was locked out and thus went to the garage to get out of the cold. He said she must have turned the engine on to warm up, as if she didn't know the risk of asphyxiation from the exhaust. It was her heart, he said. It just gave out. Pretty soon, everyone else was telling the same story. The cafe staff, even Thelma's mother, who initially insisted her daughter had been murdered. It was like someone told them it was in their best interest to stop asking questions. Roland West was never arrested, but without any further evidence, the grand jury had to believe his story about the death of Thelma Todd. But maybe the truth was a different story. One about mobsters and a Hollywood legend who'd stood up to them. A story that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts, because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis.